Well, today we conclude our look at 3 John and thus conclude a look at John's epistles 1, 2, and 3, though we had a little break for Easter in between. Last week we read John 3, but I'll, or 3 John, excuse me, but um, I will go ahead and read this back half. We're looking at verses 9 through 14 today, where John introduces us to two more characters. Last week we were introduced to Gaius and uh, not so much as a character, but that the letter was written to him, and we we learned by John's uh, words to him something about this man's wonderful character. Uh, may we all be Gaiuses within the church, those who receive and care for the brothers and sisters in the faith, and particularly those who partner with those who are ministering in more direct ways by hosting, by supporting, and in so doing, we are co-workers uh, for the kingdom, partners in the ministry, as he said, for the name of Christ. That's what Gaius is and what he was. Today we're introduced to two other characters, Diotrephes and Demetrius, and we'll spend our time primarily on Diotrephes, as you'll see there's much more regarding him in the negative, and then just a short word about Demetrius. So, verses 9 through 14. I wrote to the church, by Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content, that, uh, not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren, and forbids those who wish, wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself, and we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write to you, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. So here we conclude this very brief letter that John writes. He's writing to the church, but specifically he writes to this man, Gaius, or Gaius, however you pronounce it. And he mentions that, listen, I've written before, but, but this Diotrephes has kind of aborted the letter. He's, he's standing between me and the church, if I'm writing to you, Gaius, essentially, and asking you to send this on to the church to be wise, to be perceptive here, particularly with regards to Diotrephes. And again, there's more I want to say, but I'm coming. And we heard that also in 2 John. Who these characters are, again, we don't know much. Many believe that Demetrius is the one who's coming with the letter. And so he's commending Demetrius, who is bringing the letter. Perhaps that's true. Perhaps Demetrius is a man within his church. But the way that he's describing Demetrius to Gaius as if he's somebody Gaius wouldn't know, hey, he comes with good testimony, uh, tells us that perhaps, uh, in fact, Demetrius is coming from outside the church. And we have in, the, in, in verse 11 the charge, and we'll use this charge to kind of allow us to look both directions. Here's the charge that comes to us uh, from the sermon. Really, it's a very simple uh, text today. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Do not imitate 
what is evil, but what is good. So the charge here is a charge to imitate. And this is an interesting charge because of the nature of who we are as human beings. We are, as human beings, image bearers. Right? If you think about that, we, we know what that means. We know it means that we're to reflect the character of God, maybe his communicative attributes, uh, certainly his love, maybe even some of his responsibility and work. Right? We're creators, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. These are all things that God does, and we imitate that right? because we are image bearers. Our very nature, the kind of thing we are, is that we reflect. That's what we are. God created man in his image. That is at the very heart of what humanity is, is imitative. We are made to imitate, and we will always do it. We are imitators. We don't like to think this about ourselves. We all like to think we're original. We all, we all like to think that, no, 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 we carve out our own path. It's baloney. We are imitating people in ways we can't even, we can't, again, I always say we can't do the math, right? But we're imitators. It's what we do because it's the way God made us. Now, he made us to imitate him. But he has also given us one another. He has given us models, other image bearers who are also modeling themselves after him, who should be imitating God. And so the scriptures call us, of course, to imitate God. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, right? Do these kinds of things. But also to look for good image bearers, to look for people who are doing it well and imitate them as they imitate God. You'll hear Paul say this. I remember, again, being a young Wiesenheimer Christian and hearing Paul say things like, imitate me. I remember thinking, who is this guy? Imitate, imagine if I stood here and I said, now guys, imitate me. However, however, in as much as Paul is imitating Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, so as Christ is imitating the Father, he's the image of the Father, and he's taking the image and putting it into action, as the Son imitates the Father, and Paul imitates the Son, in as much as he's doing that, Paul can turn to his flock who have abstract principles, maybe, of what Christianity looks like, but he can turn to them with something very tangible and say, you've seen my life. And my life is bent on imitating Christ, who is imitating the Father, therefore imitate me. It's a very bold thing to say. It's a very bold thing to say, but Paul could do it with confidence in as much as he was emptying his life for the sake of the bride of Christ, for the church and for the glory of God. So I think it's something very important that we have to come to grips with as human beings. No, none of you are originals. Right? None of you are just carving out your own path. You all are influenced by a host of people. And it's important to recognize that because then we can begin to think about being intentional about who we imitate. Stop thinking we're not going to imitate people and start choosing the people you imitate. 
and find those who are imitating Christ. Find those who are being the image bearers of God. Because in one another, we get to see these things. We get to see the character of God put into action. Now, of course, this is not to say that anybody is perfectly doing this except Christ. But we know, we all know of people who are doing it well. And we can look to them. We can look to one another. Now, again, none of us has the full package, but all of us are, as Christians, are bearing something up. Right? We can look to one another for this person who does that so well. They image God in this way, and this person images God in that way. And here, John is, when he looks at Diotrephes, and when he looks at Demetrius, right in between them is this charge, beloved, do not imitate what is evil. I'm telling you about Diotrephes, do not imitate that. On the other hand, I'm sending you, perhaps, but if not, then look to Demetrius. Demetrius has a good report. In fact, he's got this triple testimony that's going to him. Demetrius has a good testimony from all, from the truth, and from me. Whatever that means. From all meaning, man, there's not a person you're going to find of any good repute who's going to speak ill of Demetrius. Demetrius is a man, apparently, though we don't know much about him. Demetrius is a man who puts into action the Christian life. Right? He takes the truth, as we thought about with Gaius in the beginning, and lives it. Again, John MacArthur, in his book in the 90s, titled it Faith Works. And I've referenced that book before, kind of a playful title, one that I like titles like that because they, they're like, wait, what? And it makes you think, and it makes you work. It makes you humble yourself before a text and come and read it and say, what are you trying to get at? And I love it because it's true. That's what faith does. These things which we see in contrast, and like, like oil and vinegar, that kind of just, you leave them alone, they separate, and they should separate because faith is faith and works is works, and, and people who think they're saved by works minimize faith, and those who think they're saved by faith alone minimize works. Not so. John MacArthur says, faith works. These two things are not oil and water. It's what faith does. It's what truth does. Truth has legs. And it has hands. And it does stuff. And if it doesn't do stuff, then it's not truth. If truth, as we talked about last week, just stays contained in, this, in, the, in the head, if that's all it is, a bunch of great ideas that never manifests itself out through the fingertips, then you don't know it. You don't really know it. You think you know it. But you don't have that deep, intimate knowledge of the truth. Gaius is a man for whom truth works. He, he lives it. And so is Demetrius. Demetrius is a man, again, though we don't know the details, and hence not much is on him. But whatever, we have the apostle saying, hey, Demetrius has a good report from all. Even the truth, whatever that's kind of a tricky phrase, the truth testifies to Demetrius. Like, Demetrius holds the truth, and, and when you put Demetrius up against the truth, he's approved. He speaks the truth. He lives the truth. 
and even for me, and you know my testimony is true. So when I say Demetrius is a man to imitate, when I tell you Demetrius is a man of character, when I say Demetrius is a man who lives the faith, Demetrius is a man who imitates Christ as Christ imitates the Father, believe me when I say it. Look to Demetrius. But let's spend time where John spends time today, and that's on the negative, on the do not imitate. And hence, I titled the sermon today, The First Shall Be Last, and took the title from Jesus' words in Mark chapter 9. Because in Mark chapter 9, the disciples are having a little Demetrius moment, excuse me, a, a Diotrephes moment. So if I've confused those names now, it's hitting me. Maybe I've been doing that. Forgive me. Diatrophy's bad. Demetrius, good. So whatever I've done, that's beyond editing, Jerry, if I've messed that up. It is what it is. We'll let it stand. We'll let it stand. Diatrophy's bad. Demetrius, good. Too many. Come on, John. Couldn't you pick two other ones? But the disciples, another day, are having a diatrophy's moment when they're wrestling over who's going to be the greatest. <laughs> this is what the disciples are fighting over and wrestling over. And we know that John and James kind of scurry up at another point beside Jesus and ask when he sits on his throne, can they have the seats on his right and left hand? Like this was an issue for these guys. And you know how it is when you're around a master. You know, you want to be the guy who's closest to him, right? I felt that when I was at, at seminary. Like, I wanted to be around Sproul. I just want, I, I had the chance to do it, and he's the man. He's the reason I'm there. And any chance I had to be, you know, and, and if he would acknowledge me, you know, wow, it's just such an honor you know, to be a guy around him. We all feel that when we're in the presence of people that we think are great. And these guys want that. They want to be Jesus' right and left-hand man. They want to be the greatest in the kingdom, or at least greatest in the ministry. And Jesus, as you know, kind of calls him out on it. What were you guys debating? I heard, I heard you guys kind of going back and forth. What was that all about? It's just one of those great moments where, like, uh, God in the garden. Adam, where, where are you? <laughs> well, who told you? You know, all these wonderful questions that God just knows all the answers to. He's enjoying the process of, like, dragging it out of them. And so also with Jesus and the disciples, it's like, what were you guys debating? That sounds like it was a good debate. What was that all about? <laughs> and they're just like, oh. You know. I know what you're wrestling with. Who's going to be the greatest? How embarrassing that must have been. <laughs> they thought he wasn't listening. You want to know who's going to be the greatest? That's a diatrophies moment because apparently in verse 9, we're told, John, uh, John says to uh, Dias, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, and then he throws this little dig in there about him. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, did not receive it. So here we get a little word from John about the problem with Diotrephes, and the problem with Diotrephes is that he desires the preeminence. He sees himself, what he loves about the church is what authority he has within the church. What he loves about the work is the position that he has in it. Now, this certainly is a problem for me, right? As a, like, in some sense, you could turn this and say, well, 
Bill, you're the pastor. You're the person who uh, uh, stands in front of us every day. So in some sense, this sermon is directed toward you. Of course, yeah, definitely. It certainly is. Or to any who have leadership in the church. On the other hand, this is a word to any of us who have any preeminence in anything. As I referenced earlier, this problem with Diotrephes is a problem that we all wrestle with. We all view ourselves. Um, I believe... Uh, I'm going to get the author's name wrong now because it's just coming to me. I want to say it was Neil Gabelin. I have to. I'm going to have to check that and confirm it. But wrote a book called Life. The, Life is a movie, or Life the movie, or something like that. And he argues in this book. It was it was uh, it was a book arguing that humanity. And I don't know if the man's a Christian or not. I just remember somebody referencing it. This is about 20 years ago, and I bought it and read it. His whole point is that we as human beings, this self-centered diatrophy in nature that we have is that we all kind of view life as a movie and we are the chief character like we are the main character we're the Harrison Ford you know Indiana Jones character you know we're the person we're the we're all Luke Skywalker you know we're all the main character going through the story and we just tend to see we can say well we know that's what self-centered people do no 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 that's what we all do because we only really know our stories as intimately. Every thought we're having is our thought. Everything we're seeing, we're seeing through our eyes. Everything we're hearing, we're hearing through our ears. Every experience we're having, we're having. You are all part of my experience, right? And we can try to tell ourselves that my experience is not the only experience, that my way of seeing things is not the only way to see things. Mark and I were just talking about the sermon, you know, because Mark looks at the, the text and and looks at the themes of a text and puts together his prayer and puts together hymns and stuff. And as I'm, if you pay any attention, I'm sure as you go, you'd say, wow, I mean, we don't discuss it beforehand. I don't tell him, oh, here's the themes I'm talking about today or this week or whatever. And what you find is, for the, and maybe it's because we've been ministering together for 20 years, but what you'll find is there's a lot of uh, uh, synchronization there. It's amazing, actually. I listen to his prayer sometimes and I think, Okay, wow, he did get a pre-recording of my sermon. Right, so that's great. Today he sat down and he said, I'm wondering where you're going with this sermon because it's not what I'm, like the text that you've chosen, they're just not clicking to me. And, and, and then he said, but that's good for me to hear something that's not in my mind. And that's right, that's right, because we tend to, we tend to think that the way we see things is the only way to see things. We, we are the chief actor in the story. And our reality becomes the reality. It's just it's a problem that we all have. Something we must fight back. It's like thorns that grow and thistles in a thicket that you must cut back. And Diotrephes didn't do it. The disciples were doing it, right? It's about my being great. How can I get, how can I climb the ladder? And Jesus just cuts their legs out from under them. He comes and says, let me tell you something. He who will be great must be last, right? And he who seeks to be first will be last. All of that is contained within that, that statement. The first will be last. That is to say that the one who ultimately will be first is the one who is last. And the one who seeks now to be first will end up being last. And then Jesus goes on. And he says, see these little children? Don't you get in the way of them? That. This. You, you love on them, the little ones, the humble ones, the ones you look right over when you're looking for the important things. No, no, no. When you love on them, you're loving me 
And if you get in the way of them coming to me, the least, then better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck. Right? The ones you don't even consider, these are the ones that matter so much to me that I'm telling you, you treat them. The way you're treating them is the way you treat me. They're bothered by the fact that somebody's doing something, but they're not part of us. Remember that whole, they're doing miracles, they're casting out demons, but they're not part of us. And Jesus says, what are you holding out? Why are you so uptight about who's working and who maybe has the gift of the Spirit or who, who is getting credit for something? You remember this back with Moses even. The gift of prophecy is poured out, and then there's one random guy over there prophesying who seems to have the Spirit, and they come running to Moses, and they say, hey, do you want us to go make him stop? And Jesus and uh, Moses says, "Fine. I wish everybody would share in this. I long for the day when everybody's prophesying. When the word of the Lord is on everybody's lips. Well, I'm going to go stop this guy from preaching the word or prophesying the word of God. What are you defending? What what fiefdom? What little territory are you guarding? As this is mine, what preeminence are you trying to hold on to?" Well, this is the problem that Diotrephes had. And as I say, it's the problem we all have. I chose the story of Cain and Abel this morning because in some sense, Cain suffers from the same problem. And it's a problem that you see, where you see it in its seed form in Adam. Right? Adam and Eve, again, the temptation to Adam and Eve is a temptation of preeminence. It's not about fruit, right? It's about being preeminent. Right now, you are subordinate. You can't eat from this tree, but it's not just a tree. It's a tree with a name. And the name of the tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which means, and God said you may not eat of it, which means that God is saying to you, you may not have an independent knowledge of of good and evil. Well, where are they supposed to get the knowledge of good and evil from? That seems like a good thing to have. In fact, aren't they ultimately going to be judged because they chose evil? So how are they supposed to know good from evil if they can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And the answer is by looking to me, to God. I will be your source for the knowledge of good and evil. You you want to know if something's good and evil? You look to me. I will tell you. And I've told you, don't eat of that tree. Satan offers Adam and Eve the freedom, the independence from subordination, from obedience, from dependence, from having to trust and follow and look to and defer to. No, eat of this and you can have preeminence. Because God knows the day you eat, you will be like him. You will be preeminent. Right at the heart of the story is a temptation toward preeminence. This is no small thing. And even in this text, by the way, I should say this, and then we'll look at Cain and Abel for a second, that that word preeminence, if I'm correct, only is one other time is used one other time in the New Testament. And the one other time it's used in the New Testament is in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. And here's what it says. 
Paul is on this beautiful, if you know Colossians 1, Paul is in the middle of this amazing passage of praise about the supremacy, the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he's the head of all things. He's the, you know, he's the image of the invisible God, right? He's all this. And then he says this, and verse 7, this is Colossians 1, and he, that is Christ, is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he, that is Christ, may have the preeminence. There's only one preeminent one, and it's Jesus. And the fact that John says Diotrephes likes preeminence. He wants the preeminence. And the only other time this passage, this is used is by Paul in Colossians about Christ who has the preeminence is so condemning. Right? Because Diotrephes, like Adam, is not satisfied being under Christ. He's competing with Christ. Imagine walking around Jesus and arguing who's going to be the greatest. Right, I mean, it's like it's like playing a pickup game on the other side of the court, and Michael Jordan's down at the other end, or LeBron James, or whoever, and arguing about who's the best basketball player on the court. It's like, are you know, are you idiots? Like, I mean, you know, Michael Jordan is right there, and we're arguing about which one of us is the best. That's what they're doing. Like, they've lost perspective about what preeminence, about what greatness means. And Diotrephes has clearly lost it. It's silly when it's the disciples and Jesus is there. It's silly when it's us playing a pickup game and Michael Jordan is there. But when it's Diotrephes and it's in the church and you're all looking to him because he's a man of authority and it starts to go to your head. And then here comes John coming in saying things to your congregation. And all of a sudden people are listening to John and he's got advice, maybe even condemning some things that you have been doing and the church has been doing, then all of a sudden this desire for preeminence starts to get a little ugly. You start aborting the letter that comes from John because his letter is kind of turning people's eyes away from me. And in my mind, this is what's happening with Cain. Right? The, the point of Cain's sacrifice is not that it wasn't a blood sacrifice. At, though we can argue that with the fact that an animal was killed in Genesis 3 to cover Adam, that there was already a precedent for the shedding of blood for the covering of nakedness. And maybe, maybe. But there, there was no call, no a, a command here to offer a blood sacrifice. But clearly the problem with Cain and Abel is a problem that's in the heart of Cain. Cain's sacrifice is not acceptable because of Cain. And he gives of the fruit of the ground. There is that little telltale sign, whereas Abel gives of the best of his flock. He gives the fat of the best. So it represents what Abel's after. Abel, Abel just is bringing the best to give it to the Lord. He thinks it's most appropriate. Cain gives of the fruit of the ground, never says he gives the first fruits. And that's just a revealing thing. But the sacrifice is not accepted because of what's in the heart of Cain. You say, well, how do you know what's in the heart of Cain? Because you see it bear fruit. Right? When the sacrifice is not accepted by the Lord, Cain doesn't fall on his face and say, 
God, my father, God, why do you find my sacrifice not acceptable? What, what is it in me? What is it that I've done? And here, humble himself and receive either the rebuke, the chastisement, what, what of the Lord? No, what Cain manifests is that his heart was already wicked. It's already turned. What's bothering Cain? As the elder brother, as the preeminent brother. It's that the younger brother was acceptable. And so what's the answer? Not repentance. Remove the younger brother. Remove the one who has stepped into my preeminence. And in very much the same way, this is what Diotrephes is doing. In steps John. John's not the pastor of this church. In steps John through his letters with convicting words, with challenging words, with exhortative words. And Diotrephes doesn't like it. Diotrephes rejects it, aborts it. In fact, anyone who starts accepting it, he's kicking out of the church. That's what it says. I wrote to the church by Diotrephes, who loves to have preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren, but forbids those who wish to by putting them out of the church. A very Cain-like thing to do. Not a rock in a field, but by ways of excommunication, cutting them off from the family of God because they don't just bow at his preeminence. So we see it in Cain and Abel. And what I love about that story of Cain and Abel is that the Lord comes to Cain and he says, hey, he, 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 the Lord comes to Cain. Not Cain coming to the Lord humbling himself. But the Lord comes to Cain and challenges him to do what is good, to do what is right. But if not, he says, sin is crouching at your door. And you must overcome it. The idea being, but if you don't, it will overcome you. Sin is crouching at the door. So here I want to challenge us because we all have a little diatrophies in us. Maybe not so little. And sin is crouching at the door. You think yourself the chief story in your movie or the chief character in your movie. And don't say you don't. We all do. We can't help it. So know this. Sin is crouching at the door and it wants you. It wants to overcome you with pride. It wants to stoke those flames. Satan plays on that. Right? Wherever it is, for Adam and Eve, it's a tree. Why did God say you can't have this? And works them that way. For Cain, it's the fact that his brother got, was received and he couldn't handle the, the rejection. He couldn't handle the fact that his brother's preeminent. For Jacob, it was that his brother was born first. Tried to grab him by the heel and bring him back in even. Tried to swindle him out of some stew to get his blessing. Tried to lie to his father to get the blessing. I don't know what, but I have to be preeminent. It's a story throughout the Bible, the story of humanity. Even the disciples who are walking beside Jesus are struggling with this temptation to be Christ, to be God to be preeminent. 
So I charge you today to be on guard, for sin is crouching at the door. And you must fight it. You must overcome it, as the Lord says to Cain there in the garden or outside the garden. How can we do this then? Well, John tells us in verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil. So that's one thing we can do. One thing we can do is get our eyes on and look toward people who flee from preeminence, who don't need to have preeminence, people who are humble. St. Augustine was once asked, what are the three graces that the church needs to be effective in the kingdom? And Augustine said, humility, humility, humility. What we need in the church is humility. May we seek it, but may we also imitate. May we look for practical examples of men and women or children who manifest humility. And secondly, and preeminently, may we look to Christ. Again, hard to be proud Hard to desire preeminence when our eyes are on Christ. Right? Hard to be proud of your basketball skills when you're watching Michael Jordan play. Right? Hard to be proud of your righteousness or your preeminence or your status, whether it's in front of a church in a pulpit or whether it's in an office or whether it's in a family or whether it's in a community or wherever it is hard to grasp after preeminence when our eyes are fixed on Christ, the truly preeminent one, and then we see him emptying himself, pouring himself out, becoming a bondservant, kneeling down and washing the feet of the disciples. Hard to, hard to have that kind of pride. I, I chose the passage about the woman washing Jesus' feet with her tears because Jesus, if you think about this picture, you've got the Pharisee who invites Jesus in, all kinds of hospitality. In some sense, you could say he's being humble. He's inviting Jesus into his house. Yet this woman comes in and puts the man to shame. She's weeping, cleansing his, his feet with, 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 with her tears and her hair, and the Pharisee in his pride is bothered by this. One, what's a woman like this doing in his house? And number two, what is Jesus doing allowing this woman to touch him? And Jesus, again, knowing the heart of the man, speaks to him. He says, he who has been forgiven much will love much. Right, The person who knows that they have been forgiven much is the person who doesn't stand there with arms folded in their, in their preeminent pride like the Pharisees do. The person who knows their sin and who knows they've been forgiven much is the person who's on their face before the Savior, who they know has forgiven them so much. Indeed, when we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, then our pride goes away. I think of the words of when I survey the wondrous cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt 
on all my pride. Right? When, when do we pour contempt on all our pride? When I survey the wondrous cross. Like when the wondrous cross is fixed before my eyes. Then my richest gain I count but loss. Then I pour contempt on all my pride. Because when I'm looking at the cross, I see the preeminent one emptying himself, Philippians 2. Pouring himself out as a drink offering for my sake. The one who is truly the greatest. The only preeminent one. The only one who has properly imitated the Father. The only one who deserves to be crowned with many crowns. There he is shedding his blood for me, the loser. For me, that false, the man of false pride. The, the, the one who seeks in a treasonous way the throne that is not mine and seeks to rip God off it so that I can be the preeminent. That that's my heart and my nature. When I look at him shedding his blood for me, when I survey the wondrous cross, then, and only then I believe, everything else will just be mere self-effort. But when I look at the cross and allow that grace to flood over me, that self-emptying to flood over me, then, and only then I Will we have the strength to fight back that little diatrophies that is within us? So imitate what is good. Imitate Christ. But imitate Christ only after having received that gift of Christ. Because without receiving it, all your imitation is mere pride. But once in humility we receive the gift of Christ, then, by the gift of the Spirit, we can set our eyes on him and imitate him. Who am I to receive preeminence and hype and glory and pomp when my Savior is dying on the cross? Martin Luther once raised this to the Pope. You ask me to kiss your hand or to kiss your feet you know, when I come into your presence. And you claim to be the vicar of Christ, the very one who when he came in the presence of sinners, washed their feet. Like he washed the sinner's feet, but you, Pope, ask that we kiss yours, or kiss your hand, or kiss your neck. Luther saw this desire for preeminence and how silly it looks when the servant of the preeminent one seems to look more preeminent than the king himself. So may we take John's words to heart and we imitate what is good and flee from what is evil. Knowing that indeed it is the first who will be last. And therefore if you want to look for the first, look for the last. Those who are last now will be first then. And those who seek the preeminence now may in fact get it for a short time. They may enjoy what they think is preeminence. But those who are first will indeed be last. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning again confessing that diatrophy in nature that is in us all. We see it in Adam, and if it's in Adam, it's in all of us. And so, Father, we pray that you would forgive us. We pray that you would help us to survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, on which the preeminent one emptied himself for the sake of those who so desperately struggle with pride. And in light of that, Father, help us to count our richest gain but loss and pour contempt on all our pride.
We ask this in his name. Amen.